I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. This week, we're going back in the archives and talking about a female directing team that was not given equal credit on an episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Then we interview Amy Adrian, who directed the documentary Half the Picture. Stay tuned. This week on Women in Film in the News, we wanted to um, bring up a past topic that really has fascinated us. It actually happened before we launched the podcast, <laughs> but here we are discussing it now. Basically, uh, two women directors, Audrey Wachope and Rachel Spector, both directed an episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. However, a big however, um, Rachel Spector was not uh, credited on the episode due to a rule from the DGA that basically stated that um, only one director to a film policy, and it, this policy is aimed at protecting the director's creative vision. Right. So although they both did half the work and they both directed this episode and everybody on set knew that they were the co-directors of this episode and that they've worked together before... Only one woman's name appeared in the credits, and literally only one of them got credited for directing the episode and doing all of this work. Truth. And as a reminder, uh, the DGA has allowed established directing teams such as Ethan and Joel Cohen, Joe and Anthony Russo, so it's mm -hmm. not like this has not happened before. Oh, yeah. IndieWire has a whole list of the best directing duos out there that made films, and right. there's, it's a huge list of people. Men. Yeah, there we go. Um, it is interesting, too. The DGA website defines teams um, in a certain way. And this mm -hmm. is this is a, a direct quote. They learned how to direct together by actually doing it and have therefore demonstrated that they perform the director's duties as if they were actually one director. So, again, it's this weird commitment to this one director for one creative vision. Right. So they're basically saying that it's not possible for somebody to share a vision with somebody else and collaborate together on that vision and create art together. And they're deciding what being a director, like what the definition of it is, basically. Totally. And when this story broke in October 2018, when the episode aired and um, Audrey Wachope uh, made a series of tweets about it, mm -hmm. basically it came out that the DGA had asked her inspector... Um, about their body of work and right. they basically stated that it wasn't great enough and the responses yeah. were very interesting um, yeah she said wakope said we were told our body of work was not great enough and when asked why we hadn't directed more our answer was we had children and full-time writing jobs a career which we fought for after being let go for sexual harassment and pregnancy yeah. wow Mic drop. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, this goes on more. It's just there's no female teams directing TV. Mm -mm. And if the DGA is there to protect and, like, support their members, right. why is this not allowed? This is... Yeah. This just, just seems crazy. if the DGA should be, you know, promoting women and supporting women specifically, because we all know the statistics are really, really low for women directing at all. And so to come out and say, we're not going to give credit to a woman for directing this piece of work is just insane. Yeah. And also interesting in this Variety article that kind of chronicled the whole story, they also linked to this other article that the DGA had also not 
quote unquote intervene uh-huh. in in the situation basically um for disney's nutcracker um which was directed by Lass hallstrom he was the first director on the movie mm-hmm. but they needed to do a month of reshoots so they brought on joe johnson to um do that extra month and basically they allowed it to be equally credited yeah, in they the directing both, credits. They both got credit for directing, even though they were not a team and they have not worked together they didn't before have a body and they didn't have a body of work yeah. like the DJ demands um, right. to be credited. Right. So that was just, I mean, in light of um, the crazy ex-girlfriend directors mm-hmm. that just this yeah. is, I mean... Logic does not follow. No, it doesn't. Actually, no. there's no logic at all. There's no logic. Yeah. It's but, really yeah. disappointing mm-hmm. and disheartening. And it was just interesting. I had not heard about this part of the industry with the mm-hmm. directing teams. And I think it's also interesting in the space of TV mm-hmm. and then what the union is doing to, um, you know, protect or support. <laughs> I, I don't know yeah. what's really or happening. what they're here. not doing. Right. Basically. And also, Yeah. I mean, it goes back to a lot of what we talked about, about just having the opportunity to begin with. And so basically these women, if they didn't have the opportunity in the beginning to build this body of work from, you know, decades ago, let's say, because they were busy raising families each individually and doing jobs to pay the bills, um, then yeah, of course they don't have years worth of directing experience together, but who's the DGA or anyone to come in and say, well, you didn't learn together. So therefore you're not a real team and it doesn't count. Yeah. I think maybe the DGA should take a look again at the, the one director, one vision uh-huh. rule. I think so. Just a thought. <laughs> Vinovore is a wine and good shop with a focus on female winemakers with hundreds of unique and handpicked bottles from all over the world with something for everyone. Stop by the store in Silver Lake, order online, or join their monthly wine club subscription for a handpicked selection of wines each month, as well as great perks like 10% off all in-store purchases. Check it out in-store or online at vino-vore.com. That's V-I-N-O-V-O-R-E.com. Now, here's our interview with Amy Adrian, director of the documentary Half the Picture. Cool. So thanks so much for coming today, Amy, and chatting with us. Sure. Um, We'll just jump right in. You received your undergraduate degree in literature and theology from Georgetown University. How did that lead you to pursue an MFA in film at UCLA? Led me in no direct way whatsoever, (laughs) of course. Um, I don't know. I mean, I always... I if I feel like if you asked me when I was a kid, not that I knew what a director does, <clears throat> but if you had asked me, like, what are you interested in? It was always, like, putting on plays and make-believe and having, like, dinner parties at my, you know, with my parents and, like, getting the kids together and being like, we're going to put on a show, like, after dinner, we're going to surprise them. And, you know, all that weird kind of, like, dorky, wonderful, oh, yeah, like, <laughs> you're, you're feeling it, right? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I always loved that kind of stuff. And I went to college at Georgetown and I had a really good experience to teach. The professors there were fantastic. And I didn't go in knowing exactly. I mean, I always knew I kind of wanted to do film, but it just seemed like a crazy thing to do. And I was like kind of a smart kid. And it just seemed like kids in honors classes, like become lawyers and stuff. Like they don't be filmmakers. And because like, how do you get a job as a filmmaker? Who knows? I still don't know. Um, but anyway, um, 
so yeah, I went to Georgetown and, and took classes kind of, I just kept taking classes that were interesting to me and that wound up being in English and in theology. So I just kept taking those classes. So that's what I wound up majoring in, but there was no strategy behind it. Um, but I always love film. So generally in film school, 50% of the graduates are female. However, only 4.3% of directors in Hollywood are female. For you, what has been the biggest difference between the culture in film school and then the culture in the actual industry? Well, there are so many reasons, I think, why women fall out of the pipeline. But, um, you know, money is topmost among those reasons. Um, <clears throat> when we interviewed Caroline Labresco at the Sundance Institute for our film, Half the Picture, um, she said their research has shown that women just tend not to be in those networks where there is money that you can just find people to invest in your early films and your ideas. And, um, guys just tend to be in those networks more. Um, you know, and I think it's, you know, in film school, you're, you're writing your, your, um, short films and I mean you do spend money on them but you get awards through the university and there are grants and there are things like that and I think it's just easier when it's like a little bit more of a meritocracy and it's like here's my script here's my idea here's my vision lots of different kinds of people can play in that environment but when you get out into the world and you have to just know people who can finance your $500,000 first feature or your million dollar first feature or your $100,000 first feature um Women tend not to be in those networks. Maybe it's harder to, for women to ask. That could be part of it. Um, and if they do, if and when they do ask, um, people just aren't used to investing in women in that kind of way as like an artistic visionary, you know? Um, you know, you look at a guy like Damien Chazelle and you're like, I get it. I get him. I get it. He's a smart guy. He's visual. He's a great director. I know I've seen his kind before. I get it. I know it. I can invest in that. And, you know, I understand what this is. Uh, you look at a young woman like Dee Reese and I think people still go, wait, I, I have to just like work a little bit more to understand there's that same, you know, level of vision and artistry and talent. You just haven't seen those kinds of people in positions like that and um you know I think women there's still a lot of work to consider women as as good investments um for their for their art for their vision so I think there's a lot of work to be done there I mean even now I feel like <clears throat> you know we're in the award season hubbub now and um, you look at a film like The Rider by Chloe Zhao, which just like knocked me out. It was masterful, powerful. You just go like that is the work of like a solid, powerful director telling a story with such confidence and authority and vulnerability. And I mean, it's magnificent. And you just don't hear about her as you should in the awards conversation. And you think if that was a you know, if that was a younger white guy who looked a certain way, I think we just are more familiar with what that is. Um, and so that's been pretty heartbreaking to see her not get her due. Yeah, especially since the film really is exploring masculinity. It's mm. almost like, like, how can this woman tell this story? But if it were a man, I feel like they're like, it would, he'd be praised for yeah sharing that message with everyone. Yeah. 
Your documentary, Half the Picture, premiered at Sundance in 2018. What was the journey to the festival like and how was the reception of the film afterwards? Well, we're getting toward the next, like kind of Sundance is coming up now and it still like blows my mind a little bit. I feel like I'm still a little bit shell-shocked from last year in a in mostly like wonderful ways. Um, I worked in film for a long time. I worked in distribution in New York. I worked for a small company and I'd go to Sundance looking for films for us to acquire and we were a small company. We had no money but and I would sneak into all the parties and like I've just I've been going to Sundance for a very long time um and I've it's always been a dream to be like wow wouldn't it be nice to be a filmmaker with a film in Sundance um and I just am huge fans of so many of the you know Sundance alumni and many of the women that we interview in our film are had their first films or their big breaks at Sundance so there's just like a huge powerful lineage of just like fantastic storytellers so Sundance has always like loomed pretty large in my mind um so yeah so it was kind of it was um it was a big surprise that we got into the festival we were still making the film we still had a ton of work to do on the film when we got in um just because this whole production has been a very mom and pop operation uh my husband and i are the only two producers there's no big production company behind it there's no big name producers behind it um and we just i mean we did everything ourselves you know payroll accounting tax stuff you know craft service like that's the kind of film that it was um so yeah it was wonderful when we found out that you know that the film got in but at the same time I feel like there was like a vice grip on my heart out of just stress and fear because we had so much left to do in the film um but you know you get the right team and you get the like we we finished the film exactly as I would have wanted so there was no you know like compromise in that way um yeah it was wonderful but it was also very scary and it was a lot of work and it was a lot of um intense emotions which I was just so in it at the time that I you know didn't really have time to predict what it would be like and I think all the other times I've been to Sundance I just had a lot of fun and I saw a lot of films I met a lot of filmmakers and film lovers and I always had a blast and this time it was just it was very 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 intense but wonderful (laughs) Just curious. So when you say like the film was not done when you got into mm-hmm. it, I'm just curious. Like, what does what that it, mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I would say <clears throat> I felt like you know we were like way behind, but we worked at this post production house um, that I think was finishing six films for Sundance, and we were right in the middle, maybe toward like the or on the earlier side of the schedule than than the other films they were working on so um but yeah I mean when we got into the festival we had only had temp music in our cut we didn't have a composer yet um we didn't have our legal squared away as far as our fair use you know clearing all the clips in the film all the photos getting all of our licensing for all of the images um you know, we were still tweaking the edit. We were still doing color correction. We were still doing sound mix. I mean, all of that. Wow. I just had no idea that was, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Cool. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, there were, there was one other film at the festival. And so you make these things, they're called DCPs. They're like computer drives, which is how 
people show films now that you don't show it on like a 35 or 16 millimeter film. Um, but these DCPs are these like film drives that have your movie on it. And the um, post-production house we worked with, different by design in Santa Monica, they were fabulous. Um, and they work with a lot of like indie doc filmmakers like us but they had a film there that they said I mean they were editing the film literally to like the day that they were premiering and even like I think they had three screenings at Sundance and they made a new DCP for each screening because they were still cutting (laughs) and still like finessing so each screening had a slightly different version oh my gosh I had no idea that's uh, yeah I was just curious about the timing of it I guess um wow yeah and then of course there are films that are you know, finish, done, have everything set. And that, you know, helps you when you're submitting to a festival and you're competing against all these other films that are finished and look great and sound great. Um, so I'm sure a lot of films, a lot of the narrative films, I'm sure were done. Ours was not. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of women in film and just generally people in film talk about how Sundance is this huge moment in their careers when they make it to Sundance. Do you feel like that has been the same case for you? And what kind of impact has the festival had on you over the last year? Um, yeah, well, you know, it's such an interesting business that we're in. Like I, as I was saying before, I have so much respect for Sundance and I've been to the festival a million times and I've seen, I've seen so many great films there. Um, but you realize, I mean, there are, I think many people in this business don't trust their own taste and rely on a handful of very smart Sundance programmers or South by Southwest programmers or Toronto or Cannes or whatever to decide what are the films that are going to be the films that basically we all see that coming year. Um, And, you know, and that's kind of, wild you know it's like there's all these other great festivals too and regional festivals and they show great films also but these big festivals have so much power and I'm incredibly grateful that Sundance programmed our film and that opened a lot of doors and um and South by Southwest also Janet Pearson there is incredible and she was a fan of the film and um you know once you get into those festivals a lot of other festivals just program your film and you don't have to you know, pay the submission fee and, you know, beg to be included in, in all of that. So being part of those festivals opens a lot of doors. Um, so that is both exciting when you're someone who has had a film at one of those festivals and it's also a little discouraging. I mean, I've certainly had many short films that I've submitted to big festivals and they don't get in. And, and many of the filmmakers in our film made feature films that didn't get into these big festivals. Um, and you just realize kind of how much of an influence those places have because people don't trust their own taste and maybe someone will submit a weird film to them and they'll like it, but they just program out of catalogs of other bigger festivals. Um, but yeah, for me personally, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's opened a lot of doors and that's exciting. Um, but you know, as any indie filmmaker and certainly as a woman indie filmmaker, it's not like you leave the festival and people like, like put a tray of options in front of you and say, which of these would you like to direct next Amy Adrian? (laughs) Like in my dreams, that's what happened. So that has not happened yet. Um, but you do, you know, you meet people and you make connections. And I met these great 
writers um, who I'm working with them on their script for a narrative project next. And you just, your circle widens, you know, and you meet people through that. And people see your work. It's an opportunity for people to see your work. And if you're at a place like Sundance, more people see it than if you're at a very small festival or something. So, um, yeah. So I'm I'm so grateful that we had that platform because it is very powerful. Um, but a lot of it is you're still, you know, meeting people and making connections and you need to manifest those next opportunities. Um, they don't just come to you. Yeah. I mean, I hope for some people, you know, they have that big film at Sundance and then, you know, they do have things. Uh, but I think that's pretty rare for men or women or anyone. How long did it take you to make half the picture? And can you speak to the process of making it and interviewing these accomplished women? Yeah. Um, it took about three years to make the film. We were filming for a year and a half. Um, and basically, I mean, it's because these women are all so busy and kind of hard to schedule. Um, and so, you know, I was in one of my producing capacities, you know, I would reach out or try to reach out or try to like somehow access, you know, the various women that we wanted to interview in the film and then kind of often get in touch with them or their people and try to figure out how to schedule it. So that took like a year and a half to get all the interviews. And we did about two shoots a month, usually two, two interviews a day. So we would do like four interviews a month for like a year and a half. Um, and a bunch of the interviews we shot are not actually in the film. Like we did cut some interviews. Um, and then we edited the film. It was like a year and a half on and off editing it. I worked with a great editor, Kate Hackett. Um, and we'd shoot a little bit and then I'd have money to bring her on and hire her. And then she'd work on it and then she'd give it to me and I'd work on it. And then we'd, you know, we'd kind of finesse it back and forth. And in the end we were in a room together, like finessing the whole thing, but about three years which seems like a long time, but at Sundance this year, there was a great documentary called Kusama um, by this director, Heather Lenz, and it took her 17 years to make that film. So three years is a drop in the bucket. <laughs> wow. So we found one of the most emotional moments of your documentary to be when um, Miranda July is talking about grappling with wanting to direct and simultaneously be present for the life of her young son while acknowledging how this balance is so different for her husband than it is for her. And the film goes on to talk about how important it is for mothers to tell their stories and also how being a director is really more akin to the nurturing nature of motherhood than it is to being like this loud military sergeant. Can you talk about how the relationship between motherhood and directing can be a truly positive one, even though it's often misconstrued as, you know, a hindrance or something negative? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a really important part of the film for me, for for the film to explore. Um, and I always felt, um, I always, like, apologized to the women or, you know, I need to get my Ava DuVernay on and just, like, not apologize and just be, like, land in my <laughs> confidence a little bit more. All these women inspire me daily, and I'm trying. But, um, yeah, but, I mean, nobody asks James Cameron what he does with his four kids or Scorsese or, you know, I think Zack Snyder's got, like, seven kids or something. I mean, like, no one ever right. asks them who's watching them, where are they. Um, 
So I, you know, so I did like apologize a little bit in even bringing it up. But at the time when I started filming half the picture, I have two sons and they were three and five at the time. And it is a challenge. And I have two cinematographers on half the picture. Both of them had young kids when we were filming. And I, it was very important for me, for us to address this issue as honestly as we could. And I'm so grateful to all the women in the film for being as candid as they were. Um, I think for a long time, the fact that women didn't reach like the upper echelons of directing uh, was blamed on the fact that women had kids and people would say, oh, women don't want those jobs. They self-select out and it's, you know, it's because they have families and that's why you don't see women in these jobs. Um, so motherhood kind of took the blame for this discrimination that women faced. And so I think women for a long time were very reluctant to even say how hard it is when you have kids. They didn't, it would just be like, I can do it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Um, but the truth is it is really hard um, if you have any really demanding job, that's 14 hour days, that's being out of town a lot for chunks of time, that's hard. And it's hard when you have little kids. It just is. Um, so I really wanted to talk to these women about it and see how they were dealing with it. Um, and I think kind of universally they said it's challenging, um, but all the different women in the film have different approaches to it. And, you know, just like women in real life, like for some women, it's easier to go back to work after six weeks maternity leave. And for other women, that's excruciating. And, um, you know, we're all different in how we handle it. But, um, you know, I think the women in the film grappled with how to be good mothers and, good directors and and find a path through that and even though it was rocky and bumpy and they share stories of that in the film um you know they're finding their way and they have found their way and that was necessary for me to hear you know it's like you ask the questions to get the answers that you need to hear and so that's why that section was really important for me and you know like we end that little section in the film on Gina Prince by the wood who made love and basketball and beyond the lights and she's fantastic writer director and you know she talks about her older sons who are in middle school and high school and how they you know left all these signs around the house when she came home from a night shoot just saying like stay strong be great and you're the best mom ever and like that's how I needed to end that section and it like that's what I needed and um I think a lot of women respond to that and, you know, life's hard. Life's ha life has challenges, but I think there's space for all of it. You know, we just have to be gentle with each other and supportive of each other and work's important and family's important. Yeah. It, it was, I mean, to be a director, you have to be such a high achieving person really to like go after that. And it was just so striking to see these women that, you know, are these high achieving directors and just also want to be the best mom that they can be. That's really not a question. It just was so powerful to watch in the film. And I feel like it wasn't speaking to like motherhood. Yeah. Being a negative thing, or it was just like, no, this is another calling in my life that yeah. I want to pursue and explore and be there for it. And yeah. And I think there is, and you know, there's a deepening of your empathy and Jill Soloway talks about that. I mean, she just says everything. She states it so well, but um, it is a problem for empathy on the planet when you have people who are not parents or are not mothers who are 
in the mix creating the art that we all see. I mean, I think there is a uh, can be a profound deepening in just your understanding about and and your kind of uh, I don't know like gentleness with other people when you have kids of your own. You just you know um, you know not to overgeneralize it or anything, but I think it's a powerful perspective and it is a perspective that is extremely rare in our culture, and I think there's an overemphasis on you know, young male ego toys, explosions, you know, the, the interests of, of young guys are just overly represented in our culture. And it's fine. It's like my kids play with Nerf guns and they love it and this and that. And like, that's all fine. It's part of the human experience, but that's not 99% of the human experience. That is a part of it. And, you know, the perspectives of mothers and of children and the curiosity and the humor and the whatever, like that deserves to be, to have a expression in our culture also. A lot of the directors talk about how when they experience self-doubt, they decide to convince themselves that they know how to do it or um, pretend that they just got it under control to keep creating. Did you have any self-doubt or experience any imposter syndrome while making your documentary? And if so, how did you continue to push forward? Yeah, I think that's... Probably, you know, a very common experience. And it was um, encouraging to hear the women in the film, some of them address that. Um, and these women are incredible. So when you hear someone like Jill Soloway saying like, and she's got however many Emmys and awards and has, you know, made work that is so um, groundbreaking in our culture. Um, you know, when she says, like I can't sleep at night and I, I worry that what I'm making is not stupid or who, no one's going to want to hear it or it's too weird or it's too that. Um, you know, first of all, I'm grateful for her sharing that because it makes all of us feel better. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think everybody has that. And I certainly had that, um, you know, imposter syndrome or, so, I mean, some feeling like you don't belong there, but at the same time, I also had a great feeling that I definitely did. And so did this film. And so did this story. And I think a lot of women in the film experience that too. I mean, we all have these moments of self-doubt and, you know, is this shit and like, am I good at this or whatever? But the women in the film are also very confident and you know land in their stories and their truth um and I felt a lot of that making this film too so you waver between those things I think that's like a very natural part of the experience um but you know you just look at so many of the things in our culture that have so much support and funding and promotion and marketing and it's terrible and it's stupid and it's nonsense and so you know I feel like look at our president you know if he can be the president of our country we can all do fucking anything you know? <laughs> so I think women do tend to be harder on ourselves and you know you just have to you just have to let that go so we read that initially the film included clips with a number of men, including Jeffrey Tambor and Harvey Weinstein, which you had to cut right before the film premiered at Sundance, obviously in light of the stories that came out about their behavior. What was that moment like for you, and how did you edit so quickly around that? That was kind of an evolving, I mean, as it was for everybody as we experienced this in October, 
what was that October 2017 so that's like when the Harvey Weinstein stuff came out um and it was just kind of a snowball that was gaining momentum and it seemed like every week there was a new major figure in our culture who revelations were coming out about their you know incredible you know everywhere from misbehavior to assault to you know harassment to abuse um so i think we like everybody at that time was just kind of reeling from just the revelations and these were very powerful people and in our film i mean it was kind of wild we had this section in the beginning of the film where um it's kind of like these highlights of women's successes. And so it's just like short little clips, just kind of like reminding you of like, you know, the twilight heyday when that film came out and what a phenomenon it was. And, you know, just, um, the, and different interviews, uh, that these women had with their early films and when they were big successes. And so in the beginning of the film, we had Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Tambor, Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, John Lasseter, um, and it was like a joke. I mean, we we had to cut them all out because the beginning of the film, the point of that section wasn't about, you know, sexual harassment at all. It was about it was just about these women. And but you couldn't as a viewer look at those clips and not be taken taken out of the story and you're just thinking about like oh Matt Lauer had like a button under his desk that would close the door and you know all this like creepy gross stuff. Um but I think, you know, in a way it was uncanny that all of them like happened to be in the first three minutes of our film. <laughs> but at the same time, it's reflective of how widespread this issue is that, you know, th- there were so many and they were, those are like lions of the industry. I mean, like I said, I used to go to Sundance like all the time in indie film in the late nineties and the two thousands. Harvey Weinstein was God. He was a kingmaker. He was it. And you just think, oh, was he going to Sundance looking for young female directors to, like, give them their break? No, he wasn't. That's not who he is. You know, or you look at Les Moonves and, you know, CBS for decades has had the worst numbers of women creators and writers and shows featuring women. And you go, oh, this is the guy who's running it. Um, you know, it's it's not a big leap to wonder why those people weren't seeing the creative genius of these writers and directors and, and, you know, female creators in front of them. They just don't look at women that way. Um, so anyway, when all of that stuff was coming out, it just became clear that we had to rework the opening of the film. And so my editor and I, uh, we, we did it. I mean, we submitted to Sundance with all those people in it and then we just, we just reworked it all. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's a really sad state of, you know, of our culture and you hear like, where are the women directors? Why aren't there more women directors? And you're like, these are the people who are running things. And like in the stories that have come out about them are grotesque and, shocking and you know really terrible and not not all men in power but like a a, a powerful enough like segment of them that it's no wonder why women have had such a hard time your film talks about how making a second feature film is actually more difficult for female directors than making their first feature film due to funding getting hired etc 
are you working on a second film and how are you navigating this? Um, well, as I said earlier, I think, you know, I come from an indie film mentality. And so um, <clears throat> certainly I've met more people and some kind of snippets of opportunities have come my way, but it's still, I'm assuming very much in my, you know, the ball is in my court to make something happen. But um, yeah, I mean, I have some um, documentary ideas that are in the early stages and I'm also working with these writers on this. Um, I met these two great writers who approached me and they have this kind of Western comedy revenge uh you know, feminist, uh, just like kind of party of a movie that I love. It takes place in a horror house. So it's amazing. Um, <clears throat> so we're kind of, uh, they just have a great script and I'm thrilled that they've approached me. And so we're, we're trying to make some progress with that. And, um, yeah, so there's some things in the early stages on the horizon. Um, but I'm definitely approaching it all with a very indie film mentality of just, you you need to make your own opportunities but studios i'm out here i'm available i am ready for that let it be said 20 million dollar rom-com ya whatever call me either in your interviews or in the process of making it what was the most surprising thing you learned while making your film the most surprising thing for me was that these women who have achieved so much, who I look up to so much, um, that they've had as hard a road as I've had, if not in many cases, a much, much harder road, um, just as far as rejection from festivals, money, um, actors, um, being disrespected, whether, you know, executives or on set, um, you know, they just, they've, they've had hard roads themselves. And I think, I mean, I look at people like Miranda July and Gina Prince Bythewood and, um, you know, just all the women in the film, uh, you know, Catherine Hardwick, they're just, Karin Kusama they're like dynamos of vision and creative power and so I think I just kind of assumed that their road would have been easier because they're so good and that just would have been clear to the world and that would have like you know greased the wheels for their success in the business but um but they've all had it you know they've all really had to um you know, be very tenacious in order to keep working in the business. And that was just, that was a surprise. And many of the women we talked to talked about, you know, even in early on in their career, submitting to the Sundance Writers Lab or the Sundance Directors Lab or the festivals with their early films and being rejected by all of that. Um, and even, you know, these are, again, women who are just so good at what they do. And so, um, it's just a reminder, you know, that that's like kind of a rite of passage for everyone. And it's, I'm sure it happens, but it's very rare that there's just some writer who's so good that in their first try, they get into the Sundance Writers Lab where they're, you know, it, I, I'm sure it happens, but usually you just have to, you have to keep working and building those relations, you know, build those relationships to get to those places. So yeah, I was surprised about that. 
Yeah, the road can be pretty tough. How do you keep like your inspiration alive and like uh and your motivation at a, you know, good level? Yeah. Well, it fluctuates daily. That <laughs> um anger. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that. I was just thinking like what is my current state of mind? And I have to say, you know, the award season is a great opportunity to celebrate films, to celebrate work um which is fun and it's a it's a great opportunity um but yeah I just get really riled up when I just see people who um who you just who are who I'm just in awe of and they're you know they're not getting their proper due so I think um I think fury is is helpful to um keep the creative fires burning um And also I would say I am so grateful for my kids who are just really interesting, weird, curious, um, you know, amazing people and kind of like never ending fountains of love and affection. So, um, you know, I think, I think this business would be really hard if you were in it at like a very high level, if you were a young person and maybe achieved a lot of success early on, um, you know, the highs and lows and people love you and then they hate you and you say something wrong in social media and that can be scary. And, um, I don't know, all of that is really tough to navigate. And I think a lot of people who are in this business are sensitive people. And so you have this weird dichotomy of, being a sensitive artist who's vulnerable enough to kind of feel and understand other people's emotions and invest in them and care about them. And, um, but also being in a business that is cutthroat and tough and brutal. Um, you know, I, it, it can be really hard, but I mean, for me, first of all, the, you know, this film, has had like a very wonderful and manageable road. You know, it's not like the pressures of making a $300 million like Marvel movie or something like that. Um, But even if you are doing something like that, I think, you know, friends and family and real relationships with real interesting people and, you know, maintaining those connections is really important. I mean, in making half the picture, it's like I would have frustrations or things would get fucked up or whatever in, in the process of making it. And my son would be like, wipe my butt. And you're like, all right, you know, wipe Lucas's butt. Like, you know, whatever. Life goes on. You got to put dinner on the table. Like, you can't just go through those down those rabbit holes of like, oh, no, it's doomed. You know, it's like you still got to like have that life goes on thing. So that yeah. can be very helpful. Yeah, that sounds grounding. <laughs> What's your vision for the future and your work? And what would you like to accomplish or create? I don't know that I have like a specific, I've never been very good at like a specific career vision of like, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to accomplish this and then I'm going to get my agent and they're going to help me get this. And um, maybe it would be good if I had that uh, streak, but I don't. Um, but I think for me, I mean, the the joy is just in, if I can continue to make, films and direct and and make work ideally that features interesting characters and I tend to be drawn to the lives of women and girls and exploring those experiences um I will be very happy doing that um and I think you know I'm I'm really interested in in doing that in documentary and in narrative and in tv and there are so many 
um, different places where you can explore that and in teaching also. Um, so yeah, you know, if I can keep working and making stuff, I'll be happy. We end every, uh, interview with our rapid response segment, three, two, one action. So you can just answer in a word, phrase, short sentence, okay. small paragraph. Just yes. kidding. <laughs> um, okay. So three, what's your, f- uh, the film that's been most influential or your favorite or the one that's just popping into your mind right now? I will. Let me say something really quick, which is, I know my answers are really long, but um, I asked some of the women early on that we interview in half the picture, like what their favorite movie is. And they like so chafed at that question. And they were just like, I like, oh, that's such a pedestrian question. Like, how could I come up with just one film? And they were very reluctant to say it, which I thought was really, I mean, maybe they don't have a favorite film. But yeah, I have a whole bunch, a pantheon of like ones that I love. But one of my all-time favorite films is Todd Haynes's Velvet Goldmine, which is about glam rockers, kind of based on uh, real glam rockers in the 70s. And it's about dreaming and reinvention and sexuality and creativity and um, just like a visual and emotional feast. And I love it. Two, dream person you would like to work with? First of all, Jason Momoa. Yes, thank you. Aquaman. <laughs> Cal Drogo. Oh, oh, I didn't know. Also that. star of The Bad Batch in a Liam Amapur's fantastic film. Uh, yeah, he's fabulous. I would love to work with him. <laughs> he's gorgeous and has that kind of like Mark Wahlberg-ish like authenticity. It just seems like a real dude you want to <laughs> hang out with. So him. <laughs> One, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, there's so much good advice in half the picture. The one that's, I mean, there's just tons and tons, but the, I don't know. The th- thing that like I keep coming back to is you just can't take this stuff personally and be tenacious. Action. What are you most looking forward to right now? I'm interested in more stories from people who haven't been able to tell their stories before because I think we're getting a taste of that and what we've seen so far is so interesting like when you were saying who do I want to work with in the business I mean as far as like kind of more creators you know people like Ava DuVernay who made Queen Queen Sugar which I just absolutely love which is this kind of meaty story of the southern family black family that you just haven't seen before I love um, on stars that show Vita by Tanya Siracho and uh, just these like stories that haven't been told that I feel like you see it and you're like um I don't know. It just like lights a fire in you. You're like, Oh, I don't, I haven't seen these people. Like I've met these people in my life or I know they're familiar, but I've never seen a story like where these people are centered and these stories are told. So I'm really excited about that. And I hope that we'll see more of that. Where can people follow you on Instagram, Twitter? Yeah, I'm personally on all that stuff. So I'm on Instagram and Twitter and we have a half the picture Facebook page and Instagram and Twitter account and all of that. And we post behind the scenes photos and some clips and things that are not in the film. There's like so much great material that's not in the film. So, uh, yeah, all of those usual places. And where can people stream half the picture? Uh, you can find half the picture on iTunes so you can rent it or buy it on iTunes. It's also on stars, um, for the next couple of years, I think. And it's like, you can, you know, get it on Amazon prime and, I know all of those other places, but definitely on iTunes. Wonderful. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Thank you. Yay. Thanks. 
You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos are by Megan Cafferty. This podcast is produced by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.